from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 10th. Today, seven decades of history between the U.S. and Iran, and what that history could mean for what's to come. So what do you think the average American knows about the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Iran, other than the movie Argo? Actions of Iran have shocked the civilized world. It's interesting that you mention Argo. Our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages. If we're going to go because I think that for the majority of Americans, it was the embassy takeover on November 4th, 1979, that most people think of as the sort of beginning of our problematic relationship with Iran. And... Uh, I know some of those former hostages, and I, I once asked one of them, uh, who's become a friend, what he thought of that film. He thought he said, you know, I thought it was really entertaining, but it wasn't necessarily based in uh, any lived experience that I know about. Shocking yeah. that Hollywood basically divorced itself from reality. From reality, but I think that. The reason that film did so well was because it was rooted in a moment of history that uh, still lingers in the American imagination. It's a wound on our psyche that, for better or worse, has colored our entire relationship with Iran and, frankly, the Middle East ever since. I am Jason Rezaian. I'm an opinions columnist for... uh, What's my title? (laughs) (laughs) You probably remember Jason. He came on the podcast last year to talk about his experience being held in an Iranian prison for a year and a half. But now... I am a global opinions columnist for The Washington Post, and I was formerly our Tehran bureau chief. I wanted to talk to Jason because he understands its relationship between the U.S. and Iran really well. And as the news has come out over the last couple of weeks, Jason says that he feels like there's a lot of context that's missing. A lot of moments in the history of this conflict that many Americans don't know or don't remember. And that you have to think about more than just 1979 and the hostage crisis. Exactly. I think, you know, we have to first and foremost think about The coup in 1953. This was a coup in Iran that was orchestrated by the CIA. Right. So in the early 50s, the Shah was a pretty weak leader. His father had been exiled after World War II. He had taken over. He was a very young man. And the Shah, is that someone who is who inherits this role and that his family had been leaders of Iran, or is it like a democratically appointed thing? Or? It's a, a monarchical system that's passed down from generation to generation, but his father was the first in that dynasty. It's kind of a self-created dynasty. There was a a vacuum of power in the early 20th century that Reza Shah, Reza Shah Pahlavi, that's the family name, sort of filled. 
and created his own dynasty that ruled for uh, about 60 years, right? But when he was exiled and his son took over, son was pretty weak. There was a parliament in Iran that was fairly strong, and the leader of that parliament was a man named Mohammad Mossadegh, who had been educated in France, was a secularist, you know, believed in democracy, and in 1951 nationalized Iran's oil industry. Hmm. And as you can imagine, America and the UK were really upset because they were the ones who had control of Iran's oil industry up to that point. So they thought to themselves, we really need to get rid of this guy. The U.S. had the capability of infiltrating Iran with spies through the embassy and the CIA, but it wasn't something that the president at the time really wanted to do until he was convinced that Iran was uh, under threat of falling to communism, right? The Brits got involved and basically said, hey, look, president of America, we're going to be in big trouble if Mossadegh takes Iran towards Moscow, right? And that inspired— And this would have been during the height of the Cold War, too. Of course. And we're talking 1953. So a guy named Kermit Roosevelt— and his, you know, his name is Kermit. His name is Kermit, and he's also a Roosevelt. One of that family concocts a plan to institute a coup in, in Iran. The oil-rich kingdom of Iran and its pro-Western Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, witnessed a contest for power beginning August 16, 1953, between forces loyal to the Shah and those supporting the red-backed regime of Premier Mossadegh. The Shah By most accounts... All sort of fell into place in the last minute. Everything worked out. They were able to take this guy out without taking him out. Meanwhile, in Tehran itself, all stood ready to welcome the return of the Shah after the dramatic development in events which first compelled him to flee and then led to a royalist coup d'etat in which Mossadegh was arrested. Now, everywhere, supporters throng the streets proclaiming their loyalty to the Shah. They returned the, the young Shah to the throne. And the, uh, the one who was previously kind of weak and yeah, and 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 propped him up for the next thirty years, right? And that's how this animosity began. And it's also how the U.S. decided to become sort of involved in regime change operations throughout the world. If you look at things that they did in Guatemala and, and attempts to take down the Castro regime, the blueprint was always the 1953 coup. In Iran, Because it went off so swimmingly. Exactly. And so do we consider that sort of like a, a golden era of kind of lovey-dovey feelings between the U.S. and maybe not actual people in Iran, but the leaders of Iran at the time or people who were allied with, with the young Shah who was put back in? That was the beginning of this love affair, right? And uh, a sort of unshakable relationship that was built on a lot of transactions for oil and in exchange for weaponry. And we saw the Shah as somebody who was completely pliant and flexible to Americans' demands. He was pro-Western. He was, frankly, you know, not that comfortable with his Iranian or Islamic constituencies. And, you know, felt more comfortable in chalets in Switzerland uh, (laughs) than he did in Tehran. And that was not a problem for America. I could see why that would be a problem for people in people Iran. People in Iran, right? And during that time, the American presence in Tehran 
grew and grew and grew. And there was... Like in what ways? American companies doing business there, whether it was oil companies or aviation and military companies. You know, you had... uh, a massive American diplomatic corps there. So when we talk about the embassy being taken over, if you go to Tehran, the American embassy compound, which still exists, is a huge piece of property right in the middle of town with a massive brick wall around it. You could imagine the angst and uh, resentment of people uh, seeing that this, you know, this big walled compound in the middle of the city was uh, what they called what the, the revolutionaries called the den of espionage. During that time, in the mid-50s to the late 70s, little by little, the Shah started subsidizing the studies of a lot of young Iranians coming to the United States. So it was sort of um, the dream destination of young Iranian students. My father was one of those people. He came in 1959 and ended up living his life here. Uh, But the idea was, let's get a large Western-educated population to come back and develop this country. You mentioned before we sat down here that that one of the moments that people tend to not remember or tend to not talk about is the moment when the Shah came to the U.S. to visit with President Jimmy Carter in 1977. What what happened there and what's the story behind that? So there was a, a lot of visits that went back and forth. The Shah came a couple of times a year. Jimmy Carter that year traveled to Tehran, spent the New Year's with the Shah and his wife. I asked my wife, uh, with whom would you like to spend New Year's Eve? And uh, she said, above all others, I think with the Shah and Empress Farah. So we arranged a trip accordingly and came to New Year's. On behalf of all the people of Iran, welcome to our country. And this event was sort of a, a welcoming of the Shah to the United States in solidarity with the U.S. government. They had a, a ceremony at the, uh, at the White House on the Rose Garden. And the Shah reached out to community leaders all over the country and said, you know, we will pay for you as Iranian-Americans to put together a group of people from your community to come and welcome the Shah. I know about this because my father was one of those people that they reached out to. Hmm. The, the Iranian consulate in San Francisco, and at that time there were probably half a dozen Iranian consulates around the U.S., um, reached out to him and said, we'll charter you an airplane, bring, you know, 80 of your closest friends and relatives, doesn't matter if they're Iranian or American, together. We want you to make signs to welcome the Shah and all this. And so, you know, my parents did that. I was a year and a half old. I have pictures from from the occasion. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, you know, there was— And it was part of the motivation behind that to, like, demonstrate that there is support for him, even though he was starting to face more unrest back home? Completely. That was the entire idea of it. And at the time, as I mentioned, there were so many Iranians studying here— uh, my dad was an older brother in a large family of siblings who he was bringing to the U.S. little by little. His youngest sister was in high school at the time. And she said to him, she said, you know, don't get involved with this. There's going to be a protest. People are already talking about it. People at high school are telling me that, you know, 
their friends in college are going to go and, and, and disrupt this. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, there was a couple of thousand people out there. Uh, this is at the White House. At the White House, right? Tear gas. I mean, you can, if you look in the, the archives of 1977, you can find these images of Jimmy Carter and the Shaw on the lawn of the White House, sort of covering their eyes from the tear gas. That's something that today, that sort of attack right on the White House grounds, is impossible to imagine. So that should have been the kind of canary in the coal mine for for what was to come. Iran was experiencing a lot of turmoil in 1977 and 78, a big backlash against the Shah, the monarch. Who was America's most important regional ally at that point. Uh, we bought a lot of oil from Iran, and Iran bought a lot of military equipment from us. It was a stable relationship. Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time, said that we have no better friend in the world than Iran. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. So that in 1979, when the revolution really kind of picked up steam, and they took down the Shah, it was a huge surprise to American policymakers, and it left them scrambling about what to do next. The person who co-opted this, this revolution, which was a multifaceted, many-grouped attack on the monarchical system, was the Ayatollah Khomeini, who had been a, an exiled religious leader, been out of the country for about 25 years. He comes back to Tehran in February of 1979. This 10 minutes to 10, Khomeini was being helped down the steps of his chartered Air France jet to set foot on Iranian ground for the first time in 15 years. His first moments were uncomfortable ones, became increasingly nervous. Khomeini's name was the rallying cry that brought down the Shah, and now to his followers waiting outside the airport, he's the implacable opponent of Dr. Bastiar's government. and is sort of anointed as the leader of this new regime. They hold a referendum, which is basically yes to Islamic Republic or no to Islamic Republic. Uh, it passes 97% in favor of yes to Islamic Republic. There hasn't been another vote since. Right? <laughs> and everything that we know about the repressive nature of the Iranian regime stems from that. Within a couple of days, women are forced to cover their hair and, and their bodies in public. The hijab becomes enforced. Any manifestation of anything that's considered a Western or a foreign non-Islamic lifestyle is outlawed, alcohol and everything else you can imagine. And so this is a shocking period of tumult in the country. But still, the U.S. government thought that it had a handle on things and that the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic would be short-lived and would be replaced pretty soon by a more malleable pro-American state. That didn't happen. 
and in November of 1979. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy. The Americans inside have been taken prisoner, and according to a student spokesman, will be held as hostages until the deposed Shah is returned from the United States. The American hostages were blindfolded, handcuffed, and marched out on the U.S. Embassy's front steps by the revolutionary students. And things have never been the same since. That captured the American psyche. It, it spawned uh, the idea of late-night news shows. Mm. You know, Nightline, originally, ABC's Nightline, was, was essentially tracking the events of the hostage crisis. Good evening. This is a new broadcast in the sense that it is permanent and will continue after the Iran crisis is over. There will also be nights when Iran is not the major story. Like, was the U.S. president worried about that? What, what was happening in Iran? Did did they see any kind of cracks developing? No. If you go back and you, you know, read what the presidents in the 70s, so, you know, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter had to say about Iran, and those are three very different presidencies, all of them thought of Iran as one of their best and, and most important allies and one of the most productive and profitable relationships that we had in the world. Nobody saw it coming. Even if you read the cables leading up to the embassy takeover in November of 1979, a week or two in advance, the ambassador was saying, nothing to see here, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> you know? Well, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's an important cautionary tale for right now. Because even when we had eyes and ears on the ground and presumably a large intelligence presence in that country, we got it wrong. How about now when we haven't had anybody there in official capacity for the last 40 years and no statesperson, no American statesperson has visited Iran in all of this time? How can we presume to tell ourselves that we have a handle of what's going on inside that society? I don't think we can. So one thing that I've always wondered about the Islamic Revolution is, like, even the fact that it's called the Islamic Revolution, like, was it was it a revolution, a change of political leadership that was really driven by religious beliefs and, and, and how people wanted to see those beliefs manifested? Or was it more of a political revolution? I try and not call it an Islamic revolution because it wasn't. It was a political revolution. It was the Iranian revolution against the monarchical system that they'd been living under for a very long time. That it became the Islamic Republic and was co-opted by the clergy was one of these uh, anomalies of history. So when you look at the shift from the reign of the Shah to the Islamic Republic, were there actually some commonalities there? Like, is, was there a common thread? I think there's a couple of common threads, and they're not very obvious. One is that both were very repressive regimes that did not allow dissent. You're noted as a very strong um, authority figure in Iran, and yet you're extremely popular with the people. Somebody said to me that if there were a referendum held tomorrow, 90% of the people would vote yes for the Shah and all his policies. Why then do you need to be so authoritarian if you have this kind of popular support and warmth towards well, you? Well, first of all, it's more than 90%. Secondly, what do you call author authority? To enforce the law? 
to make uh, such fantastic, uh, drastic changes without bloodshed. If you call this authority, I don't think that my people mind that. They want it. That's not uncommon in the world, but in the case of the Islamic Republic, they were promising a much freer and a more democratic society, and that has not happened. The other commonality is the extreme measures with which the two regimes went to to try and stamp out forms of expression that they disagreed with, right? The Shah's uh, reign was sort of marked by a very pro-Western approach that didn't really take into account a lot of traditional values. So there was even a period of time when uh, the Pahlavi dynasty wanted to to outlaw the hijab entirely. Uh, whereas under the Islamic Republic, they've kept the, the, the hijab mandatory uh, at a time when, you know, increasing number of women don't want to have anything to do with that. They want to live and dress the way they want to live and dress. They don't want to be told that uh, they can't express themselves or present themselves to the world in, in any particular way. So I think that those, those are um, ways that they were uh, both not very representative of the entire population. So let's skip forward a little bit in the timeline past the 1979 revolution and to the 80s. Right. How did the relationship between the U.S. and Iran evolve from there? The 80s were a really tumultuous time in this relationship. And a big part of that was the fact that Iran and Iraq were embroiled in an eight-year-long war. Saddam Hussein thought that the Islamic Republic was weak and that he had an opportunity to extend his borders into Iran, so he attacked. So and he was just basically looking for more land. He just wanted yeah. to take over some of Yeah, and, you know, it was an oil-producing region, and it, he thought it made sense. The wreckage of an Iranian jet fighter shot down over Iraq in the war that shaken the whole Gulf region and the wider world beyond. The fighting, begun by Iraq, threatened to involve other Gulf states and even the Americans and the Russians, who both have deep-rooted interests in the region. And quickly this, this turned into a protracted war with, you know, battalions of, of trench fighters. It was, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat for, uh, for eight years. <laughs> Along with bombing raids in both capitals, I mean, it was it was a mess. Chemical warfare attacks. Over a million people died in in this war, and the ugly reality is that everybody supported Saddam Hussein, hmm. right? Including the U.S. Especially the U.S. Right? There's a very famous picture of of uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Saddam Hussein shaking hands. <laughs> That, that they aged poorly. <laughs> really poorly, right? 
So, you know, we sold Saddam Hussein all sorts of weaponry to fight against Iran. And then little by little, when the chemical weapons attacks began, you know, we were selling gas masks to Iran. I mean, you know, it was a very, very callous and sort of nasty war where everybody in the rest of the world took advantage of the situation to make a buck. But it left those two countries in tatters. And I think it really solidified, at least in the leadership of Iran's mind, that they could not have a relationship with the United States because, you know, the United States had sided with their mortal enemy. In the end, the lines were where they were when when the war started. The only difference was that cities were destroyed and, and, and many people died. And I think that the appetite for continuing that war uh, among the Iranian people was over. In the midst of that, in the midst of lingering tension between Iran and its neighbors, uh, and in July of 1988, uh, in a really horrific incident, the U.S. warship, the USS Vincennes, shot down a civilian Iranian air flight. Flight 655 from its normal route in Bandar Abbas, which is a southern city in Iran, to Dubai, killing 290 people, crews, passengers, everybody else on board. You know, I'm I'm mortified that I I hadn't known about this. I hadn't heard about this until honestly like a few days ago. But what actually happened? I mean, this is the U.S. shot down a civilian plane. The official line at the time was that it was mistaken on the radar for uh, for a military plane headed towards Dubai. The official response by the U.S. has been woefully. Underwhelming, I guess would be the word. I mean, there's never been an official apology. Nobody's ever been held accountable for it. The commander of that ship was given a special commendation. And you said that the U.S. has not formally apologized for this? No. Uh, you know, they, they've said that it was an accident, but, you know, there's never been a real reckoning. You know, reparations were paid to families after the fact. It was a settlement between the U.S. and and those people, but it wasn't as though, you know, there's been an official recognition that we were at fault and taking responsibility. So there's one last period that I want to get to. Mm. It is the most recent period of the last four to five years, a period that you have some firsthand knowledge of because part of the Iran nuclear deal is basically what resulted in your in your release from prison in Iran. But what, I mean, I think, you know, we were all alive for that. And I, I think a lot of people understand basically what the nuclear deal was about, trying to negotiate with Iran so that they don't develop nuclear weapons. But what made that deal possible? And why was it important in the end? Even though at this point, it's kind of Moved. mostly been yeah. dismantled. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it the the idea that we were stopping Iran from being able to pursue a nuclear weapon is a really important one. But I think that a large part of that crisis, if we want to call it that, was manufactured. And another piece of the puzzle that we never talk about was a, a reimagining or a realigning of influence in the Middle East, right? Iran was seen as 
the aggressor and the most dangerous country. And the Obama administration thought to themselves, we should try and mitigate that threat the best way we can. How do we do that? And their assessment was you do it by engaging them and engaging them in a process with other allies, with regional allies, with NATO partners, with the EU and China and Russia to create a more secure Middle East. The process, though, was really interesting because for a year and a half on a near monthly basis, high-level meetings were taking place between Iranian and American officials for the first time in over 35 years. There hadn't been that kind of contact since the hostage crisis, since before the hostage crisis. So, you know, the, the byproduct of this deal was a lot of human intelligence about the power players of the Iranian regime, but also about their intentions and their, their needs, their desires, their fears. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, for better or worse, has been thrown out the window in this process. And the way that the Trump administration approaches their Iran policy, it all starts with what they call the horrible Iran deal of 2015. But, you know, the reality is we got 37 years leading up to that of a lot of back and forth, of a lot of false starts, a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of close calls that we should have been learning from. And we should have been learning from collectively so that, you know, any administration... Republican or Democrat could make wiser decisions vis-a-vis Iran moving forward. Jason Resign is a global opinions columnist for The Post. We are announcing additional sanctions against the Iranian regime as a result of the attack on U.S. and allied troops. On Friday, the Trump administration announced that they're hitting Iran with a new wave of sanctions. They target senior officials in the Iranian government, who U.S. officials say were involved in attacks on two bases in Iraq. And they would extend restrictions on sectors of Iran's economy that foreign nations are barred from doing business with. First, the president is issuing an executive order authorizing the imposition of additional sanctions against any individual owning operating. At the White House, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the new sanctions are expected to cut off billions of dollars to the Iranian government. We will continue to apply economic sanctions until Iran stops its terrorist activities and commit that it will never have nuclear weapons. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44-episode podcast journey through American presidential history. 
If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the presidential challenge in 2020. Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House, what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers. When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad? And with award-winning journalists. The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. You can find all 44 episodes of the Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.